Hi, I'm Nandika, a sophomore at Redmond High School. I'm a second year member and co-chair of the FEMA Region 10 Youth Preparedness Council. And this podcast is about public health preparedness and injury and violence prevention and policy. Today I'm here with Dr. Dikudis from the Yale, um, Univer- the Yale School of Public Health who will be sharing some t- strategies and stories of her experience in these fields. Before, I wanted to thank you, Dr. Dikudis, for mentoring me for the past couple of months in writing my research paper on mental health preparedness and the trauma inflicted on the brain during a disaster. I truly appreciate all the support and um, the time you've taken out of your busy day to guide and support me. I truly couldn't have done it without you. Your accomplishments are incredibly inspiring and have motivated me to pursue the field uh, further in the future. But yes, welcome, Dr. Dikudis. I thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I'm super excited to have you. Thanks, Antika. And it's great to be able to do this with you. Um, I've really enjoyed working with you and watching you put together the research that you're looking at and really um, pulling together a lot of great information that can help your community and other communities. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate those kind words. Uh, But first, I was just wondering if you could provide a brief overview of your role at Yale School of Public Health. Sure. Um, At the Yale School of Public Health, I'm a lecturer in the division or department of chronic disease epidemiology. And it is a group of faculty that look at all kinds of issues in public health and is part of certainly the larger School of Public Health at Yale. Um, We do a lot of interaction with faculty in the other departments, um, but my work really focuses on injury and violence and some focus on disaster. Um, And in the context of injury and violence, I do a lot of work on gun violence and suicide prevention in veterans. Um, and so quite a bit of, you know, a range of topics that I cover. Oh, wow. It's really amazing, especially the span of um, topics that you just mentioned. So uh, your career, as you mentioned, spans uh, different aspects of public health, from injury prevention to disaster preparedness. How do you see a difference in preparedness within these fields, and how has emergency preparedness in these systems changed over time? Well, I think that's a great question, because um, things have changed, and I think they've changed for the better, as far as looking at ways that we can really um, prepare better as a group, as a society, and as communities for um, for various kinds of disasters, whether they're natural or man-made. Um, in the injury prevention work and injury prevention community, we really focus on what can we do to keep an injury from occurring? So what are the kinds of things that we can do as far as either the design of a product, such as a motor vehicle, um, the um, policies that might influence what somebody does with a specific product. So again, if you think about motor vehicles, things like speed limits, things like um, uh, seatbelt laws, um, and then um, what are the things we can do in the environment? How do we have safer roads for people to drive on or safer crosswalks for pedestrians? Whereas when we think about disasters, 
there's some things that we really don't have the kind of control over the events that occur that we do with some other things in injury, um, injury and violence. So in a disaster, for example, when a, when a hurricane strikes, well, um, how do we prevent hurricanes? I mean, we, we really don't have a way to just keep a hurricane from striking a particular area or a community. But what we do know that we can do is we can work with that community to help prepare it for responding to a hurricane or minimizing the damage and the, um, the things that happen to people's lives. An earthquake is another kind of um, example of a disaster that we again don't have control over as we don't create the earthquakes. Um, those are things that are geological and um, there's a lot of reasons why they occur, but we know that we can help with looking at how buildings are um, structured so that they're resistant to an earthquake or how people can be um, can learn what they can do if there is an earthquake in the area they're living in and how they can prepare by having either a you know preparedness kit or um, something that can help them get through the aftermath. So that is those are some of the major differences that we see. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the range of uh, different disasters that you covered and how each of them have developed in a different way. And kind of transitioning to your role as a former executive director of Defense Health Horizons, can you share some like insights into the unique challenges and opportunities in promoting health within the military community specifically? Sure. Um, well, one of the things that we do know um, in the military community is we really need to have a medically ready force. And that means that the people who are um, responding and who take care of the health of um, the, the troops and the people who might be impacted, um, we have to have them ready to do that and to be as healthy as possible. And then we need a ready medical force. So we need to make sure that we have adequate and actually excellent training for people who are the physicians, the nurses, the therapists, the um, various people who work within a health system and who work within the military health system in order to provide care. And we know that they don't just provide care for, um, for the troops, but for example, they often are involved in responses to humanitarian crises and to um, disasters around the world. And so they may take care of children, they may take care of um, older adults, they may take care of a lot of people who are not necessarily part of the military itself, but who are impacted by whatever um, the medical force is responding to. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that there was such a range of people that were in like the specific community. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing that perspective. So considering your background in uh, emergency medicine and public health, uh, can you share your perspective on the importance of community resilience altogether um, in the face of disasters, both natural and man-made, similar to what you were sharing with the military community? Sure. 
I think um, we need to help people understand how they can, how the community can be ready and prepared for any kind of disaster. And as you said, whether it's something that's man-made or something that's natural, um, we can, we know lots of times based on geography, what some of the natural disasters that um, might pose a risk to a particular community are. So we know where there are a lot of tornadoes. We know where there are earthquakes. We know where there's a potential for a tsunami or um, a potential for a hurricane or a major storm, just like the one we saw this um, the past couple of days in the Northeast that really was a very severe coastal storm. So we know what those are and we also know what the impacts are. So one of the things that we can do is help people prepare for those impacts. And when we talk about man-made disasters, we know that there's various kinds, whether it's something that is a, um, an explosive device that's used to create um, injuries and damage and death, or whether it's a bioterrorist event, we know that there's things that can be done and that people can prepare for. And so we try to teach people in the community how to be cautious, how to understand um, when there might be a risk or how to notice things that might seem to be risks. Um, you know, find, seeing a, a, um, a pack or something that's sitting, package that's sitting on the ground that hasn't been touched and it looks somewhat suspicious, knowing what to do if you see that, knowing to report it. Knowing when to report anything that that seems out of the ordinary. That's a very interesting, like perspective. Because when I was thinking of community preparedness, I was thinking of like what to do after to be prepared, rather than how you can actually prevent it and know if something is out of place. So yeah, that's very interesting. And like also, thanks for making the distinction between like man-made disasters and natural disasters, because there is like different things that you should do to prepare for both of those. So yeah, thank you for that. And having served as like the director of um, the National Center of Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC, what are some key lessons you've learned about mobilizing public health resources in the time of crisis or emergencies? Okay. Well, I think what, what we learned a lot there was that there are always people who have been trained in various things that are public health kinds of um, practices and responses. So epidemiologists, um, people who know about infectious disease. And we saw, you know, we saw a lot of that work that they did during the pandemic. People who know how to track things, people who know how to set up programs and how to evaluate their effectiveness. So we know that we have those kinds of resources, both in agencies like the CDC as well as in local areas and local health departments, um, state health departments, county health departments, and that there are people in those places who are really part of any kind of disaster response and certainly disaster preparedness. And they can help with both um, monitoring things to make sure that there is nothing occurring that is out of the ordinary 
but also they can help with the response itself and with looking at how things work. Are they working the way they should? Do they need to be modified if there is another kind of emergency that occurs later on? So um, people can be mobilized at various levels at the local, state, national levels in order to um, respond to the emergencies that we might see. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, I feel like especially in your unique role that there's a lot that like people like me in the community don't know. So it's a really cool perspective and like lessons that you've learned from that. And um, what strategies do you believe are most effective in raising awareness and addressing issues, especially in younger populations like myself and even like children who are younger than me? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things um, that uh, you are doing right now where you're involved with the youth group that works with FEMA is very important because you learn a lot about what's going on, what are um, some of the risks, what are ways that things can be done to make the community responsive. And those are all really important. In other places, um, when we talk about um, things like suicide or other kinds of injuries, it's also important that people have somebody sort of of their peer group that they can talk to and that they can also learn from. Um, I have found that high school students and elementary school students can be tremendous advocates for change and that they can have a lot of input into what can happen in order to improve the safety of their own communities. Yeah. So it's really important that um, to engage people at all ages, of all ages in doing the planning, because things are not going to be the same for everybody as far as how they understand something yeah. or how they respond to something. So it's important to have broad engagement. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I definitely like see that a lot in my own community, being of that age group where like, um, especially when I talk to younger students or see others talk to younger students, they go back and talk to their parents and like bring forth change. So I definitely see what you're saying. And um, your work at the Avial Foundation focused a lot on brain health and violence prevention. So how do you see like an intersection of mental health and violence? And what steps can communities take to promote mental well-being, particularly mental preparedness and disasters? Sure. Well, I think that's a really good question because I think sometimes there are people who think that everybody who's violent is violent because they have a mental health problem, but it's not necessarily that they have a brain health or mental health issue. It may be what they were exposed to or what they learned as a child and what they observed. So some of the things that we need to think about is how can we help people learn to um, to cope with things? How can we help people, you know, ahead of time, how do you how do you cope with stress? What do you do to alleviate any stress that you're exposed to? Um, does it help for you to exercise? Does it help for you to be able to get out into um, and be exposed to nature? Um, some people alleviate their stress by doing some of their hobbies. Uh, whether it's something creative or something where it's involving some physical work. Um, 
Some people like to garden. There's so many ways that people can help alleviate their stress. And so having that outlet is one really important piece of things that we can help people think about and help them learn and help them find something that works in their, um, their community and their environment. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money to have some kind of outlet um, that, you know, that you can enjoy and that you can use to de-stress. Taking a walk um, outside or even going to a park can be very, um, very helpful and can help relieve stress. So I think those are some of the things we can do. And then some of the other things I think we can do is help people understand that um, sort of cumulative exposures or cumulative stresses have a tremendous impact on somebody's mental health. And so there needs to be strategies that we can teach people on how to cope with repeated stress, you know, so learn a strategy that works for you and ask for help if it's not working. And I think that's um, a very important piece of things is asking for help and finding help when you need it. Yeah, I think that's like um, a very important strategy as you were saying, and I've definitely learned the importance of that through like reading the papers with you and like learning more about it, how important that actually is, that like small mm -hmm. step in helping with mental health preparedness. So thank you for sharing. Um, and in your current role as a chair, of the board of the like stop abuse campaign what initiatives and policies do you believe are making a specific impact in preventing abuse and foster fostering safer communities mm -hmm. i think what um some of the things we need to do is we need to um help people excuse me and um children parents caregivers teachers understand how they can um, how they can deal with conflicts when they disagree. What's the way to do it so that it's not a violent disagreement, but that you don't have to necessarily agree on everything, but how do you do it in a way that's respectful of another person? And that's something we need to do, um, I think, from early on. We also need to be concerned um, when children are repeatedly exposed to violence because it teaches them that violence is the way to deal with things. And we also know that exposures to violence can actually change um, some of the mapping in the brain and can actually create changes in somebody's DNA. Oh. And we don't, we, we don't want that to happen. We really want to, we want to ensure or work to ensure that children have safe, stable, and nurturing relationships, that um, adults care about them and teach them and show them um, ways that they can uh, have a good relationship with other people, how they can resolve conflicts without being violent. Those kinds of things are really important. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Like, as you're like, how um extensive the impact is as we're talking about even going into the dna and like the brain and everything so that's pretty uh remarkable and like very important as you were saying mm -hmm. and like looking ahead what do you believe that the most pressing challenges in public health preparedness are 
and how can we as like individuals contribute to building a more resilient and healthier society in the future? Well, I think there's there's certainly multiple challenges, and I think it's sometimes that um, when people, you know, we we um, will put out a warning or somebody will put out a warning saying, you know, there's going to be a hurricane and we want people to evacuate or get away from this particular area. And um, people leave, they evacuate, and then whatever occurs with the hurricane, something changes, it changes its path, it loses its strength, um, and it's not something that we can necessarily easily predict. Um, and then people go, oh, well, the next time I'm not going to pay attention because, you know, they were wrong this time. And they'll probably be wrong the next time they tell me that I need to evacuate, you know. So it's um, it's helping people to understand that while we would like to think that um, science is exact, it's not exact. There are some things that we can't always predict 100% accurately. We can predict risks, but we can't always say, this is an absolute risk. Um, we absolutely know the hurricane is going to hit here um, in time for people to really prepare for something. So um, getting people to kind of trust that the predictions may not be 100%. And there may be times when, you know, you kind of, you, you leave, you evacuate, or you, you get prepared for something, but it doesn't happen. Um, that's just, that, that's just kind of, kind of normal. Um, uh, it's yeah. the way that we, the way that things happen. We don't, we don't predict anything with a hundred percent accuracy. Yeah. I, I see like, that's very important. I believe like, especially for us to know that just because we prepare for something, it's not going to happen and that's okay. I actually preferred. And, um, thank you for bringing up that point. Cause I think it's like very important especially like as like being on the youth preparedness council i see like a lot of people often don't like consider that as well and i haven't really considered it until you brought it up so yeah um thank you and i like for my last question i wanted to ask like i have truly been inspired by all the amazing work that you've done in your like uh, career that spans a lot of different fields and i was wondering if you had any words of wisdom or advice for future generations who look to follow in your footsteps and for like potential public health professionals especially those interested in injury and violence prevention okay uh i think that there are so many opportunities um for people to do something and to make change i don't think i ever could have predicted um where my career would go or how it would evolve um, some of it was, as someone might say, a matter of seizing opportunities to actually make a difference and do something. Um, and so one of the things that I found was I might be asked, well, would you be interested in doing this or would you want to do this? And I would think about it and I would think, yeah, that really fits with what I'm passionate about. It really fits with being able to prevent injuries or violence, or it really fits with something that I, I care about and think is important. But I think the other piece um, 
of advice that I would give anybody is it's not it's not so important who gets credit for what happens or for something changing or making a difference. It's the fact that you actually can make a difference. And when that difference is made, um, it really doesn't matter who gets credited with it. What really matters is that it's benefiting the community or benefiting um, a single person sometimes. But in public health, we really try to do things that will benefit the entire community. And I think that's the important piece that we are trying to do things that will help people who might not have the knowledge to do some of those things um, or the ability to do some of those things, but they would still like to see a positive change um, in the world that they live in. So we try to do some work in those areas. So I would say, follow your passion. Um, <laughs> And really find something that you love doing or that you're very interested in. Um, and don't do it because somebody else tells you to do it. Do it because it's something that's meaningful to you. Wow, yeah, it's very inspiring. And like, I just got goosebumps and everything. So yeah, I'll definitely take that to heart. And I'm like incredibly passionate about mental preparedness. And thank you so much for like motivating me and supporting me. And I'd love to pursue that further. And I think uh, those who are probably listening to this podcast are probably inspired by you as well and all the effort that you've taken. So thank you so much for sharing these vital and crucial things. I personally learned a lot from listening to you and all your experiences. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. And as I said, I I think you're doing a great job and you, you're asking some really great questions. Um, and I think it's important for all of us to um, look at what we do and, and reflect on it and make sure that we're helping other people. Yeah. Thank you.